What's up, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, host of the Adult Education Podcast. This is episode 66, and joining me today is marriage and family therapist Elizabeth Earnshaw. Now, before we get started, I just want to take a second to thank you for checking out my podcast. Adult Education was formerly known as Be More Well. So if you're looking for Be More Well, you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. Uh, If you missed why I changed the name, you can check out episode 60 for more information on that. But thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I really hope that you're able to find some new information, knowledge, and inspiration each week from my guests. I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the show so you'll be notified of all future episodes. And if you've got a minute, it would be really helpful if you could leave a rating and review so the podcasting gods know what you think of adult education that really helps to get new listeners to check out the show. This week's guest is a repeat offender, and by that I mean we've had her on the show before. She's awesome, and I just feel so lucky to have her join me again. I'm talking about licensed marriage and family therapist Elizabeth Earnshaw. If you want to check out our previous conversation, it's episode 23 of the show. Now, if you're not familiar with the name Elizabeth Earnshaw, you may know her better as her social media handle, Liz Listens. Over the last few years, she's been sharing poignant relationship advice and developed a massive following of nearly 250,000 followers on Instagram, not to mention the other social platforms as well. That's got her the attention from major outlets like the New York Times, Huffington Post, and even, oh, the Oprah magazine. People have definitely been taking notice of Liz, and rightfully so. Her little nuggets of information that she posts on social media are just so helpful. I find myself getting really reflective on some of the things that she puts out there. Like one she just had the other day uh, really had me thinking. It said, when we start to characterize our partner as being the problem in our repetitive conflicts, we are likely to cascade into further conflict that's harder and harder to get out of. Think about that for just a minute. It's just so true. She hit the nail on the head. Liz is preparing to release her first book, and it's called I Want This to Work, an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age. My favorite thing here is how she says the modern age. Times are different, and so are relationships. And so many other books and different uh, pieces of advice don't take that into consideration. They still look at kind of classical views of relationships, and you just can't. I love that Liz took this turn with her book to look at how we really do live our lives now. We had a great conversation. I'm sure that you're going to love this episode. So here you go. How are you? I am great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm just busy. That's all. (laughs) How have you been? (laughs) What's new in your life? Well, I mean, gosh, since we last spoke, I officially became a dad. Um, Yes. So that has been insane, as you know, because you're a parent. Life is definitely different when you have little ones out there. How is it going? It's, it's good. It's good. She's a really good kid. We always say we could do a lot worse, um, you know, but, <laughs> but there, there's just this added thing, you know, and, and it's pandemic still as much as people may want to ignore the fact that there's still a global pandemic going on. It is still there. I know. Um, so we've, uh, we're kind of navigating as much as we can with keeping her at home and with us. So uh, my schedule basically is I do the morning radio show from 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then I come home and I'm daddy daycare until my wife gets home from teaching. So it's just kind of a long day sometimes. And I'm not complaining because it's the way life is and I'm okay with that. Like I love being with her and I, yeah. but it just can be a lot some days. And you can like it and still complain. Sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I always feel, but I feel guilty. I feel guilty complaining about anything involving my kid. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get it. I, cause like we had, we, we do have George in daycare now cause he's older or Montessori school or whatever. But for a long time, we didn't want to 
because of everything going on. Yeah. And it was like the same thing, you know, like I would work and then I would take care of George. And then I would go straight from that back to work. And my husband would do work and then George and then work. And so it was like, if we weren't with him, we were working and it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. You kind of feel like there's never, there's never really a break. Like you never really even have that moment to just stop and like drink that cup of coffee or whatever and get that yeah. breath of fresh air that you need. To be like alone. <laughs> right. Like this is the most alone I've been in the last week is sitting here to talk to you. And I've got a dog. that's like freaking out in the corner that wants to go run around. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking your, your time, your alone time to hang out with. Stop it. Thank you for giving me your time. You're the, uh, you're the busy one. I mean, you've got this massive social media empire going on. You've got a podcast, you've got a business and now you've got a book. Yeah, it's a lot. Last time we spoke was, I want to say a little over a year ago. I want to say it was like maybe late summer, early fall. I don't remember the exact time, but it's been about a year, we'll say. It was like right before you were about to have your baby. Okay. So yeah. So it's been about a year because she's 11 months yeah. old. Um, yeah. And at the time, the book was, I'm assuming, something that you were thinking about because you don't write and publish a book in a year without thinking about it beforehand. But we didn't talk about that, which is okay. Uh, the podcast came up. I mean, I feel like a lot has changed for you in the last year. Yeah, a lot. So I started working on the book in 2019. So okay. I would have been writing it at the time, but not talking about it because it didn't feel real, obviously. Um, but yeah, now the book is finished. It's going to be out in the world. And I'm also on the Good Risings podcast that I'm doing. So there's been a lot added to my plate and a lot of opportunities. And it's been pretty amazing. When you say that you weren't talking about the book because it didn't feel real, do you feel like I've been fascinated by imposter syndrome? So do, is that kind of what you feel? Do you feel like, like, I can't be a writer? Like, that's not me. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because like you said, a book doesn't just happen in a year. It takes years to write a book and it definitely felt like imposter syndrome. It's also such a weird process where there's a lot of start and stops. So you're writing an outline and then nothing's happening with it for a little bit. And then the outline turns into chapters and the chapters turn into a book. So it doesn't really feel like a book until kind of the last several months, the last few months of all the editing. So definitely imposter syndrome. And then definitely just it's a very strange schedule of getting something done where usually when you're completing something, there's like output that people interact with or see, but with a book, it's just like, hanging out there for a couple of years with nothing happening. Did you want to do the book yourself or was it something that somebody proposed to you as an idea and said, Hey, I think you could be really good at this. Like, let's talk about it. Yeah, both. So I wanted to write a book. I had thought about that before doing the social media stuff. I had always wanted to compile all of the like relationship information and put it in one spot, but I didn't understand how you go about it. I didn't understand where you would even start. Yeah. And looking back, I like really did not understand. Um, and so it was just something I thought about. Then somebody reached out to me in 2019, an agent, and she was like, I think you could write a book. Do you have ideas? Is there ever been thoughts you've had about that? And I shared my ideas. And so she kind of helped me to create a pitch and it was history from there. Did you tell her, I've got an idea and I want to make sure I have the longest title of all time? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I 
because I, I do love the title of the book and I think it encompasses exactly what's in there, but it is kind of funny. I'm like, I'm typing it out for my own notes. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the longest book title of all time. <laughs> it's so long. So I want this to work is the title. Yes. The other is just the subtitle. Um, which makes it very, very long. And full disclosure, I did not come up with the subtitle. <laughs> and when you write a book, you really do have to give up a lot of control, <laughs> which has been very hard for me to do. But it is a long subtitle, an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age. Like, I don't even know that I have it memorized. <laughs> I'm reading it off the <laughs> I would, you know, I've got, I've got the printed out copy here as I posted on Instagram because yeah. I, I really wanted to feel like an editor. So I printed it out and put a little binder clip on it and walked around with all this loose paper in my hands. Love it. Love it. Yeah. And you have like a, an edition from like three edits ago. So yours is a little different than what's actually in print, but, um, they didn't have these available until this week. <laughs> Publishing. It time. was like, right right at the edge. They even emailed and they were like, just so you know, there's a possibility that these aren't going to be ready oh, on the pub date. And I was like, what happens if that happens? It's like, it's like does this sneak up on you guys? I mean, you knew the publishing date months ago, like you've had, it's been on pre-sale on Amazon. Like it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. These are all questions that I have, but I'm sure I think a lot of it actually has to do with COVID because yeah. Like the distribution lines are just disrupted everywhere. So it's like, who knows how many pieces of just this little book, like the paper had to get made, the ink had to be available, like all of that stuff. And apparently a ton of books aren't going to come out on time this winter because of it. I've been hearing that. There's even one, there's an author that I like that does picture books whose name is escaping me right now, but uh, his book was delayed by a few weeks and he was on like Penguin Random House. So a major publisher. And even that was delayed yeah. by a few weeks because of printing issues and COVID issues. Yeah. So it's definitely yeah. not just you. You're not alone in this. No, but it did. It got printed and I have a copy now of the real one. Um, and it's so cool to see it in real life. I love it. I'm so excited for you. I also have a funny story. So when I printed this out, I did it at work and I have a coworker. She's trying to save the trees as much as she can. She refuses. Like, what are you doing? Well, she refuses to use the internet for anything. So she prints literally everything she uses out. I mean, it's like 500 pages a day of material that she prints. But when she's done with it, she always puts it back in the printer to reuse the other side for the next day, which I can appreciate. At least she's trying that, but sometimes. Especially when, if like, you're just using it to make notes on it or right, something. Exactly. So yeah. I, I, but I forget sometimes that she does that. So when I go to print something that I really like need or something official, I'll print it out. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> like, cause the other side is all this. <laughs> so half of your book is all printed on somebody else's notes and other things. So I'm trying, <laughs> I'm reading it and I'm getting distracted by, wait, what did they write on that side? What's over there? You're like, why is bank of America part of this? Right book. Exactly. Why is she including her bank balance? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, Liz, I do want to congratulate you by the way, on five years. Uh, I saw on Instagram that you celebrated your five-year anniversary. So congratulations to you on that. Yeah. Thank you. Which I guess is fitting given the fact that the book is coming out and the book is about relationships and how to navigate some of those tough times. Yeah, totally. A lot of the things I wrote about in the book are things my husband and I have had to navigate over the past seven. We've been together for seven years, but married for five. So yeah, I feel like we've made it to the seven year itch and we still like each other, which is nice. 
<laughs> so this is something my wife gets on my case for sometimes because I'm on the radio. And yes, from time to time, I over-exaggerate a situation that happens at the house because, you know, theater of the mind, you know, sometimes our lives are very boring. But if you exaggerate just a little bit, it makes the story much cooler. Does your husband read your work here and go, hey, wait a minute. That's not how this went <laughs> down. Like, this is not. I do wonder sometimes, like when I'm on podcasts, you know, we're entertainers. We're sure. like talking. So, of course, like it sounds a little more interesting than it probably is. But I will say that in the book, so he's an audio engineer. So luckily he got to record the audio book. Oh, wow. They hired oh. the publisher, let him be the one to record it, which was really cool. And he was like, first of all, I feel like I'm in some like warped meta reality where you you only wrote the book to like teach me what you want me to do. <laughs> and I'm now being forced to listen to the entire thing and learn. But it was really funny because while we were going through it, he was like, I know that doesn't say it's about me, but I feel like that's a that's an example from our life. And I was like, no, it's really not. It's just a general example. And he's like, I don't know. It sounds like us. So I will say in the book, it's real to life examples. You're like, wink, wink. It's not about you. Wink. It's not about you. I wasn't inspired by your defensiveness. But that's what we do, right? I mean, in our in our lines of work, you take you take examples and you take experience and you turn it into uh, the next step, you know, for you, maybe it's you find a great piece of advice or a great way to work through something based on something you and your husband have dealt with. You know, for me, maybe I just find the humor in something stupid that we did and hopefully share it to make other people feel good about their lives on the radio. But that's what we do in our lives. We take that personal experience and relate it to other people. Yeah. And I think that's like what people do whenever they're trying to make, whether it's like music or they're on the radio sure. or writing or whatever you have to tell stories so that people can connect with it. And they have to be at least a little bit interesting. They can't be totally boring and real to life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it's boring and real, too real to life, no one's going to watch it. So, or nobody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about this book a little bit here. And I just want to say that I love right at the beginning, how you define modern love. Uh, do mm. you want to explain that for me? Yeah, sure. So, you know, a couple things. One thing that I think is really important when we think about love is that like a truly loving relationship is about really being able to honor the other person, letting them honor themselves and who they are. And also within that, being able to honor you and yourself and, and feeling that from the other person. And I think that that's really what we seek in our relationships, which makes it more complicated sometimes. And of course, in the history of humans, I think everybody's always wanted that, but there wasn't as much maybe freedom to do it because a lot of marriage, a lot of relationships were based on like util utilitarian needs. So like you have to get married because you don't have financial options. You're not going to be able to support yourself, whatever it is. And I think that as there's more equity in the world among partners, we are seeing more and more people um, having the opportunity to have these really meaningful relationships where they're, they can support each other, they can be interdependent. But I actually think we're having more conflicts because of that as well, because it's just not as easy uh, to, to copy the roles we saw or to copy the things that we see in movies or that we saw our parents play out. And so we're kind of like at a loss around what am I supposed to do when I'm supposed to actually compromise or accept your influence um, so that we can work together to make our relationship feel good? 
I've had conversations about this with other people, and it's interesting because, you know, say you take that stereotypical family, leave it to Beaver family relationship that a lot of us grew up on and we understand as that was the prototypical, you know, mom, dad, kids relationship. And as, you know, weird as that may look to have the mom that stays at home and does all the work at the house, the dad goes, there was an element to that structure that made the relationship quote unquote easy because it made sense. It was more of a contractual relationship where it's like everybody knew their place. They knew their role and that's what you did. There was no complaining. It was, that was your life. And now everyone's doing a million different things and they want different things. And it does, it does seem to make things a little more complicated. So I'm not suggesting we need to go back to that, but at the same time, like when you look at that, you're almost like, okay, there was an element of that, that kind of made relationships easier. Totally. And that, you know, one of the things that you touched on was there was this contractual element that made things clear and they made things like in a way kind of boundaried and, um, they, they, nobody had to necessarily even discuss their expectations because it was like, oh, this is what I expect you to do because this is what everyone expects their partner to do in this role. And this is what I'm expected to do. Now we have this privilege really to have our own expectations, but what we're struggling and we're pushing up against in our relationships is that we are still using that old model in many ways where it's like, I think this is what I'm expected to do, but then we're putting that up against, I don't want to do that, or that doesn't work for our family. And so we're navigating what we think we should do versus what we want to do. We're also, we also never saw people necessarily talk about expectations because they just knew them, but now we have to. And so we're having to redesign the way that we are clear about roles. Um, and that's challenging. Something that you just mentioned in there. Uh, so I, I kind of think of current relationships as more partnerships and past relationships is more of that contractual kind of thing where it was like, you were almost like signing up for a job, but now you're like, you are in a partnership. Each person has their own goals and has their own things that they want. And there was something that you actually put on Instagram that just popped into my head. And I'm just trying to find it really quick so I can make sure I quote it right. Uh, here it is. It says a lot of marriage issues are precipitated by stress outside of the relationship that is then uh, mismanaged with in the relationship. So it's kind of like you're bringing the things from outside, maybe in your goals, in your things that you're trying to accomplish, you're bringing that into your relationship, which can create that stress. And, you know, in a previous time when there weren't those goals, that stress didn't exist. It wasn't there. That stress falls into a category of what we call thirds. And so anything that's a threat to your relationship is called a third. And it could be stress. It could be your work. It could be um, friends who you're like way too emotionally intimate with. It could be the way you spend money, like any of these things outside that are a threat to whether or not you can be connected. And I think you just brought up a really good point, which was that also there might've been fewer thirds that people were managing. Mm. You know, each person might've had one third, um, you know, the partner who was working outside of the home, their third that they had to manage was work-life balance. And I think because there was less technology and all of that, like it kind of wasn't that hard to do. You left work, sure. you were not getting pinged all night, you ate dinner with your family and that was kind of what you did. Um, and then maybe the person who was at home, the third they had to manage might've been some friendships or it might've been the energy they put into the kids or something like that. But again, they might've had these very clear roles which were manageable for a human being. 
Now we have 8 million thirds. We, and they all equate to stress, but we have multiple jobs. Some people are working many jobs and not that they weren't in the past, but I think it's more intense than it was. And they're getting emails and they're getting pinged and their texts are coming through and Instagram's a third. And the ability to like travel is a third, the ability to, there's so many things that we can put our energy on, which can really be a threat. And if we don't manage it well, it causes huge problems in a relationship. I think you make a great point. It's not that people weren't doing other things before, but it's like, you can't turn it off now. Like, okay. If you're a a waiter or a bartender, yeah. You know, when you're done and the restaurant closes, your job is over for the day. But a lot of people don't have jobs like that. You know, like the emails come all day long and whether it's, you know, allowed or not, bosses will still expect you to look at your email and find out what's going on. Or you feel that sort of like, you feel that, reason to look at it. Like you don't want to disappoint the boss. You want to make sure that you are up for that next promotion. So I got to make sure I check my email before bed every night. And that's, that's definitely like a newer stress that we didn't have ever. Like that's within the last 10 years is when that started to take shape. Even someone in a job where like the shift ends and they don't necessarily need to bring it home. Like they do still get those texts like at inappropriate times where it's like, so-and-so isn't here. Can you come in? And in the past that wouldn't have happened. They just would have been out of luck because they wouldn't have been able to reach them that easily. Um, and I think there's this other piece where the managing of like the emotional connections is more challenging for couples now too, because maybe you had a close friend, but it, they couldn't contact you all of the time, right? They might've had to call on the landline. And again, this isn't to say that there weren't affairs in the past, but how much easier is it now to have an affair? Oh, sure. They don't have to call oh, sure. you on the landline um, to get past your partner first to get to you. Your colleague at work can be texting you um, without your partner ever knowing. They can be Instagramming you. They can, so there's just so much here that really puts a lot of pressure um, and stress and intensity on a relationship that just wasn't there. I mean, think back to even when we were like in seventh grade at our friends' houses. We were just present with our friend. And if I got home and somebody had called me, I wouldn't know until the next day. My, my mom would say, oh, did you know, Aaron tried to get your attention yesterday too. Now I would have known that Aaron tried to get my attention and I would have been texting Aaron while hanging out with Samantha. And, you know, we just, we have a lot more burdens on our attention. I, I talk to my wife every once in a while about this because she'll she'll say like, man, you're really good with directions. Like I, I have this thing where if I go somewhere once, I don't ever need to look at directions again for it. I don't know why. That's just Amazing. that's my thing. But I always explain to her because she's a few years younger than I am. When I was younger, you didn't have GPS like we didn't. <laughs> and if you did have one of those GPS that you like put the suction cup on your window and like and had it didn't even work <laughs> half the time because the GPS signal didn't go into certain areas. Or it got so, stolen so, out of the car. Or it got <laughs> stolen out of the car, uh, which is funny because she still has one. And she was like, put it in the glove. Comp-. I'm like, no one's going to take this. Trust me. No one takes them now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so you had to know where you were going. Like we still literally had maps in our cars when I was in high school, trying to find my friend's houses in the next town over. Um, so it, it's just, again, we, there's so much at your fingertips now that you didn't have before. And it, it was, a, and I think what also makes it a challenge and I could be wrong on this, but it happened so rapidly. The technological change happened so quick that there was no getting used to it. It was just here today, gone tomorrow. Like it just was so fast. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's funny to think back, like you're talking about these moments where we used to have to print out MapQuest or, or whatever. It was always wrong. Always wrong. It was always wrong. I had to write things on a napkin. You know, I would write like left at the light, turn right at the deli, yeah. turn left yeah. at, you know, that your friend gave you. And I remember pulling over to pay phones yes. if I got lost yes. and I would call my friend if you were lucky enough to have a quarter. And I would say like, I'm at the gas station and I don't know, like, you told me to turn left and I thought I did. And they'd be like, they would know the directions in their head. They'd be like, oh, okay, you're at that gas station. Pull out, go left, you know. And then overnight that stopped. And I don't even remember when it stopped. It just, you never had to do it again at some point. And we never, so I think maybe this is my hypothesis, but because it happened so quick, everyone was figuring out how to use all of these things at the same time. And by doing that, everybody figured out how to abuse them all at the same time too. Like you were saying, like it's so much easier to have these secret or hidden relationships with people via, via different social media apps, via text message, via whatever, because we all figured out, because that's what the first thing you do whenever you do anything is how do I cheat the system? So here you are, everyone's getting these at the same time and they're all figuring out how to cheat the system at the same time. And that again is a whole new stress on relationships that never existed and just blew up out of nowhere. Yeah. And I love this conversation. I mean, I, I think like a whole book could be written on this. Done. Let's do it. It's what we should. It's wild how much relationships have been impacted by that. Even just thinking about just the, it, there's like a false ease with all of it. You know, you have GPS now. So if, if you want to just like go to a new store that you heard of, you just hop in the car and put it in your GPS instead of may, maybe just staying at home and like hanging out with your partner. And so there's all this ease to be disconnected from the people that we wanna be connected with. We can drive away to anywhere we want. We can take trips. We can take on another job. We can get on a Zoom call with a friend. We can do be on Instagram. And it's making people less and less connected to each other in real life and way too fast paced for I think what relationships usually need. I, I don't wanna keep harping on this forever, but I do wanna get yeah. your thoughts on this because it's a trigger of mine. Um, even though I'm not doing anything shady or, you know, illegitimate on my phone, if my wife asks me what I'm doing, I get so upset about it. And I'm just like, yeah. I'm just like, what are you doing? I'm like looking at Instagram. Why? What does it matter? You know, like I get, I get so defensive and I don't really know why, because I'm not doing anything wrong. But for some yeah. reason, it's that, that question to me is to me, it's her saying, I don't trust you. And she wants to know what I'm yeah. doing. And that's very frustrating to me. And it's not at all what she's saying. She's just kind of bored and wonders what I'm doing. But that's such yeah. a trigger. Or, feels, or she feels like left out. And she's trying to make like a bid for connection yeah. in that moment. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? I'm sitting here. Hey, talk to me. And, you know, it's interesting because that's kind of like the fundamental attribution error, right? Which is that we see somebody doing something and we attribute it to something bad. And not that she's attributing to you doing anything really bad, but she might be attributing it to like, he doesn't care about me. He's sure. not paying attention. Sure. Da, 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 da. Um, but the funny thing is, is that, and I don't know your wife, but I know myself and I say things to my husband, like, what are you doing on your phone? When I'm on my phone though, I always have a great reason for it. And so my husband will say to me, what are you doing on your phone? You've been on your phone the whole car ride. And I'm like, well, I've been answering emails. And like my sister was asking me a question and da, 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 da. So we get defensive because in our own minds, we always have a great reason for what we're doing. Um, but our partner 
can get uh, curious, accusatory, whatever, because they're attributing it to whatever it is, you know, that they're attributing it to. And so it's a funny back and forth that can happen there. Uh, in, in your book, you talk about the definitions of independence and interdependence and all that. And I reading through that, I just kept thinking to myself, I'm such an independent person. And if if there is a struggle in our relationship, that's probably the biggest struggle that we have is I'm so independent yeah. and my wife is much more dependent. Like, I can't tell you every day she'll t- am I going to be cold in this? I'm like, I don't know. Go outside and find out if you're <laughs> cold. I, I can't answer that question for you. Like, I'm so fiercely independent that. I think it drives her crazy and that her dependence drives me insane at the same time. I love it. And people are usually matched with their opposite. And I think there's good reason you bring something good to each other. Definitely. Right. Like (laughs) you can probably bring her like a sense of, you know, security and like autonomy and encouraging her to do it on her own. And she can bring to you a sense if, if you're open to it with each other a sense of like leaning into some of those bids for connection that she makes, you know, she doesn't really need you to tell her if it's cold, but what (laughs) she loves. That's what makes me so mad about it. I'm like, you don't need me to tell you that. You can figure it out. Do it yourself. (laughs) Because for you, for you, you're thinking from a place of like, people don't need that from each other. (laughs) Where she's coming from though, is what people do when they're trying to connect, which is they're making bids for connection and they're often stupid. They're often things like, did you see how pretty the sky is? And it's like, (laughs) yeah, I saw it. Why are you asking me? We're both standing here. Like that's how an independent person would feel about it. But if you can just respond to that, what you're doing is you're doing a great service to your relationship because it reminds your wife that you're connected, that you care. You know, you could give the wrong answer. Even you could be like, I think you're going to be great. She'll end up cold, but that response to the bid for connection can be so powerful for that type of person. I don't know. You haven't been around her when she's cold. If I tell her that she's going to be okay, it's a, it's not good for me. Okay. Let me just, <laughs> it's not good. So, so there's a little piece here too, where you're like, do not set a trap for me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but you know what? That makes sense. And you know, by no means am I an expert, but I've spoken to a lot of folks uh, in the relationship field and that's something that I don't think I ever really picked up on before from people about how like the the attempt to make connection could be so subtle that you don't even realize it's happening. You think it's an annoyance like, you know, hey, what are you doing on your phone? Like that's an attempt for connection. That's not an accusatory mm-hmm. question. It's an attempt to yeah. start a conversation. And I, I think it's so I can't be the only person that's wired that way to think the other side, you know, so it's it's something that we really have to like turn our brains and understand that's what's going on. Totally. And I mean, I think that's what you're doing right now, which is really cool. You're recognizing we just are both different people with different needs. And then the bigger recognition is how do we do kind of the thing that the other person would need? You know, when she's asking these things, can I attribute it to her instead of attributing it to me? You know, because you're probably thinking the only reason I would ask somebody that is because I'm annoyed with them or because I think they're doing something. I wouldn't ask it just to connect. That's not what I would do. But instead, maybe saying she's a person who really loves connection and bids for it in a lot of different ways. And so that probably just means if I like held her hand while I'm scrolling, that might even resolve some of that because I'm responding to the bid. I'm saying, Hey, I still see you sitting next to me. 
that's my biggest struggle because I always joke with her because she she likes that book, The Five Love Languages. Um, uh-huh. And I always joke with her that my love language is just leave me alone. And that's kind of where, where I live. But I, I heard someone articulate this a little while ago. I actually think it was Dak Shepard on his podcast. And he was talking about how when he when he loves somebody, the way he shows them that he loves them is he's not a burden to them. He leaves them alone. He's like, so he will be off the radar for that person for a long time. Now, if you called that, if they called him and asked for a favor, like he'd be there for them but he's not going to be the one to initiate contact. And I think that explains me so much because I am terrible at keeping in touch with people for that very reason, because it's not that I don't like them. I don't have love for them. I just don't feel like I want to bother them. I want to let them live their life. And I don't, and that's, maybe that's a weird way to look at myself that I'm a bother to everybody, but I wouldn't make that initial reaction to reach out because I'm just thinking, Hey, they don't need me on their plate. They got enough stuff going on. I'm good. They're good. We're all happy. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You wouldn't be like, you need to hold my hand while you're on the phone because you're thinking I'm not going to annoy them. They're probably doing something really important. And I think then, you know, if, if you're working to, and thank you for your wife for being an example in this conversation, but like, if, if you're going to work on leaning towards her and this desire she has for connection and like learning from her, because your life will be more full if you do that, then she also probably could make her life feel more full if she leans into some of the things that you usually do, which might be something like, I'm just going to look up the weather on my own. You know, today I'm going to do it for me. And being able, both of you being able to learn from each other where, you know, where you need to build muscles a little bit. I told myself that I would not turn this into our own private therapy session, Liz, and I feel like I've gone down that road. But I do think a lot of what we've talked about is in your book. Um, So I think it's very relatable to this. Um, But I do want to talk about the book, first of all, because I'm 12 years old and part one is assess. But every time I hear that word, I always think of asses. And I know I tell you something really funny. I am doing an online program or designing one, and we named it Becoming an Us, like A-N-U-S, like Becoming an Us. And my husband was like, do you see what that actually said? <laughs> Becoming anus. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> and so we have asses and anus. <laughs> it's funny. I forget who I was with, but somebody saw the word assess and something. They're like, why would they write asses in there? I'm like, pretty sure it's assess, but I see where your head is at. And I know that we're going to be friends. Um, I love it. But your book is split up into three basic sections. You've got assess, you've got connect, and you've got grow. And reading, I have not finished the entire thing, I'll be totally honest with you, because I, I just feel like I'm I'm soaking in so much while I read that I can't go through it fast. I need to, like, take my time. But this is arguably the best book that I've read on anything relationship-wise, and I think because you do such a good job relating it to real life. I don't feel like... I don't feel like you're on the other side of this book preaching to me or talking down to me. Like, I feel like you're giving mm-hmm. me real advice, real examples, and you're you're with me almost holding my hand in the room, like helping me Aww. get through a situation. And it's not to say other books aren't good, but I just, sometimes when I read them, I just feel like there's an arrogance to it of like, well, I know mm-hmm. best, so you must listen to me. <laughs> I don't get that with your work. Like, I really, I feel like it's so genuine. Aww, thank you. That's good. I'm glad because... Yeah, I know what I kind of know what you're talking about. I'm also not like a very um, hippy dippy person. And so I think that 
<laughs> like, I think you can kind of tell that by like how I write, like I'm not writing things like you just breathe a little differently as right. you're in the aura of your partner. You would just be at, like, that's just not where I'm coming from. I try to keep it real. <laughs> Every morning at 6.15, you must do a sun salutation and your life will be so much. No, you, I can't do that. I can't. It's not, no, it's yeah. Not. Like if you started waking up at 4 a.m. every day and making your bed and like all of these things where it's kind of like telling people that they have to restructure their lives completely um, that they're doing it all wrong, like all of that, I think that can feel really defeating. So I'm glad that um, it doesn't feel that way. I know we were just joking, but it's so funny how so many advice books or whatever you want to call them, self-help, they always touch on the morning routine. And that is like, <laughs> That's what the, I used to. It's, such, it's such a trigger to me because I wake up at three o'clock in the morning for work every day. So I can't get up any earlier to do anything. It's like when someone says like, oh, if you stop drinking soda, you'll lose 10 pounds. What if I don't drink soda? Like that sucks. Now right. that easy 10 right. pound weight loss is gone. I can't do any of these morning things and it just breaks my heart every time I read one. I feel like a failure immediately. Oh my God, you just opened. So I don't like when things talk about that. And if it works for somebody, I'm so glad. Yeah. Like it's great if that touches you and you're like, yes, this is what I need to do. But I'm always like, but wait, I think my life is pretty functional, but I sleep as long as I possibly can. <laughs> Like I pull on my clothes two seconds before I have to do something, but you just brought up a completely different perspective of like, what about all the people in the world who are waking up at like 4am, sure, you know, 6am, whatever it is, but like, what else are they supposed to do? I think that's such a, that's such a new lens to look at it through. I know it's a unique group of people because not everybody does that. It's a small percentage overall, but at the same time, like it's a real thing out there. We, we night exist. Shift people. That's true. I mean, like think about all the night nurses, yeah. like telling like overnight doctors, security people, police officers, like, do you really want them to wake up any earlier than they're waking up after their night no. shift? There was a doctor that we just saw a story about a doctor or surgeon that missed missed a surgery because he fell asleep in his car and they were like fighting him and punishing him. And I'm like, no, you should applaud him because he did not go into surgery that day. He clearly was too tired to be operating on anybody. I saw that on Twitter and people were ripping him. And then, you know, every once in a while, a sane person was like, no, there's a bigger problem here that this poor guy, number one, is a doctor at this, a surgeon at this hospital and had to eat lunch in his car. Right. Like that's already an issue. Why doesn't the guy have a place to go like quietly eat food? And number two, why was he that tired? Like what's happening? How many hours was he working? Like, why hasn't he gotten rest? Why didn't he feel comfortable enough to tell people I'm not going to be safe going into the surgery. I need to go sleep. Um, yeah. And then he was fined for it. I'm like, thank God he didn't do the surgery. We should be paying him for that. <laughs> exactly what I said. Um, all right, Liz, we, you and I, we just are, we are tangential people. I think we just yes, keep we going are. up on tangent. <laughs> um, but I, I think one thing in here too, you talk about boundaries and over the last year and a half, year and a half plus boundaries have been tough, you know, for a lot of people have never really changed their lives because of COVID. They still had to go into the office. Maybe your nurse, first responder, doctor, whatever, you still had to work all the time. But for a lot of folks, they were spending a lot more time at home and, and even the small boundaries of going to work. That's a big thing because it does give you that separation. And there is that separate space. 
So how how are we talking about boundaries now with the pandemic still going on? Like how are we how are we able to set boundaries and create boundaries for ourselves? Mm, it, it's really hard. And I started writing this book before the pandemic, and halfway through, I was like, I wish I could just include like a whole chapter on pandemic life, but it was just too late for that. But you know, for those that had to like work together all the time at home there was like the sudden loss. Like you said, there used to be these really built-in boundaries and rituals, which are really important too. Um, and there was a sudden loss of them. And so people are in each other's space all the time. And, you know, you had to re-navigate and negotiate. How do we want to talk about this? Because sometimes it's understandable. Like maybe I don't want to be harsh about it because we're all just doing the best we can. Um, and then I think also for people who, still had to work outside of the home. Um, you know, people working at Target or at hospitals or whatever, grocery stores, they also had to struggle with this renegotiating of boundaries where potentially they were living life in a way that might've felt mostly the same. And then people are having really strict boundaries with them, even though they're out doing all of this stuff, but then kind of almost feeling like removed from society in a way. Cause it's like, oh, well you work in a grocery store. I don't think we can have you over for Thanksgiving because you're susceptible or, you know, since you're a nurse, sorry, you can't come over and see the kids this weekend because we've all been quarantining. Um, so I think there was like, in some ways, people having to navigate very diffuse boundaries of we don't have any because we have all these people in our house. We're together all the time. Um, you know, I'm working here and you're working there and you're overhearing my phone calls and I'm overhearing your phone calls and all of that. But then we also had a sudden um, restructuring of boundaries for many people that were very rigid and didn't allow for, um, you know, maybe flexibility the way that really healthy boundaries usually need to. And they couldn't this time because it was like, health and safety and security on the line in many ways, but it was hard. And I think that's something that's really, really important for people to remember is that they always need to revisit boundaries. So, you know, are, if you have the same exact boundaries that you had a year ago, do any of them need to change? Are there any that have been really rigid and now maybe it is safe to let things look a little different? Um, if you had super diffuse boundaries last year, are you starting to recognize this isn't really changing? We're working at home together and I'm going to need to ask for X, Y, and Z, like, because we're all in this house together and it's okay for me to be a little bit more firm now. So that would be my biggest recommendation is that people reflect on what did we do to make things work last year? And is there anything that now that this is kind of our norm that we need to shift a little bit? Uh, you've used a word in there a couple of times that I've never heard before in my life. I think it was diffuse. What, what <laughs> yeah. is what is that word? I feel like that makes me sound Another like an idiot. Another word but... would be like porous. So um, enough yeah, with the actually, SAT words, Liz. Okay, SAT I, words. I'm like, what? So these are like words that are in our marriage and family therapy textbooks. So they're not particularly helpful. I get so, it. You You're know, smarter than I am, Liz. You don't have to I'm keep proving it. I just have to let you know that I have a good vocabulary. Okay. <laughs> so, um, porous diffuse, it means like way too flexible. So you're like porous, you have just pores. So everything is just pouring in, you know, you might've had really quote porous boundaries with your partner, um, because you had to work next to each other. And so you never, 
you, you couldn't say, I need you to leave the room when I'm on a phone call because my boss is going to get mad. Um, cause you just had to make it work, but maybe now it's like, I don't know, maybe it's not okay that you just walk in and out all the time. And I kind of need you to like, let me have my space. So you want to try to make a little bit more firm and flexible boundaries. That's really important, but you don't want things to be like way too open. Um, yeah. And not boundaried. So in a, in a pandemic, when the world changes, boundaries are something that I feel like the topic of conversation could be could be easier to address because both people need the boundaries and you understand that the world is different. The world is changing and we have to figure this out together. Say no pandemic. Boundaries can sometimes be a tough topic of conversation because if one person really feels like there needs to be boundaries and the other person doesn't, that person could feel like it's almost like a personal attack or there's something shady going on and they don't understand why does my partner need boundaries? How do you navigate that situation? So a lot of the time when we have to have those conversations, it is around some sort of big change. So maybe not a pandemic, but maybe like a baby being born, you know, people all of a sudden might change their boundaries with their parents or their friends. It might be like, Hey mom, I know you stopped over all the time before, but now it kind of interrupts our routine. So we need things to look a little bit different. So as you mentioned, it's much easier to address that when there's a change because you can hold, you can say, I'm doing this because of the change, not because of you. At other times, we've kind of let things go for a long time because we've just never wanted to address it. We've, we fell in love and then we said, I'm not going to bring that up. I don't want to upset them. I don't want to rock the boat. And so that is awkward to say, this thing has been happening in our relationship. <laughs> this isn't just because of a change. This has been happening for a while and I'm finally getting the nerve up to bring it up to you. Um, and unfortunately there isn't like an easy hack other than you have to rip the bandaid off and you have to remember to try to use, and I talk about this in the book, like a gentle softened startup when you're bringing things up, you know, you don't want to say you've always done X, Y, and Z. Can you try to avoid criticism and say, Hey, look, there's something that's been going on. You know, I try to sleep in, in the morning and often in the mornings you're like turning the TV on and it's really, really loud. And I know you've been doing it for a while it's started to be harder for me to get the sleep I need. And so what I need us to try to do instead is X, Y, and Z. So you can bring it up without it being accusatory and mean, but you do just have to rip the bandaid off and bring it up. I could be wrong on this, but I think it's a, a safe assumption that a lot of issues in a relationship come up because of some sort of drastic change, whether it be a pandemic or somebody gets a job promotion that takes them out of the house more or a baby, which is what my wife and I have been going through. And, you know, I think we've navigated it, you know, as well as we possibly can, but our relationship is 110 times different now than it was just a year ago, because there is a tiny human that we're dealing with that has completely uprooted our lives in every sense of the word. Um, and, and it's really, it's, it's hard to navigate when you do have that life change because you want everything to still be the same as it was before, yeah. but it can't. One of the things I talk about in the book is just different stages that relationships go through. And when we have a major stressor and they can be happy, like the birth of a baby sure. Um, sure. or a new job, or they can be sad, like a death or a job loss or financial stress. But when couples face those, they move into like attention stage with each other where they're having to renegotiate life. And they also tend to feel disappointed in each other. Um, and it's almost like universal, even with good things, like I'm disappointed in the way you responded to 
my new job. I'm disappointed in the fact that you like weren't super attentive while I was pregnant. I'm disappointed in the fact that when I was really sad that so-and-so died, like you weren't there for me. So we get disappointed, we get stressed. A lot of things happen. Um, when my husband and I had our baby, that was the biggest, um, event that I think it, it caused us problems. I mean, not only do I think it, it did cause us problems, we were really unhappy with each other for a little while because we just couldn't figure out like, who are you in this stressful navigation that we're doing right now? Um, but the good news is, is that when you can work through that tension by trying to figure out how can we create a scenario that feels better for both of us, then couples are able to move through that and they move into this like stronger level of acceptance of each other, which is really powerful. Um, unfortunately, a lot of couples, they either stay in tension forever, they're married for 50 years and they just like hate each other or they break up during that phase, um, which is why so many people break up after they have a baby because they just can't navigate the stress. Um, but yeah, that is the time that thing, a lot of things come up for people. Well, it's like what you just said to you, you use the phrase, who are you? And I think when there's a major life change, who you are changes, but you still, but you, maybe you don't recognize that. Like I, I'll, I'll use myself as an example again, as I've done this entire conversation, uh, in my line of work in the radio industry, uh, my wife and I would go to concerts and different charitable events and different things all the time. I mean, we're busy all the time going out and having a great time meeting people doing uh fun things it was a very uh privileged life in that way like we we know we were very lucky to have those opportunities but the baby comes and now a we're not doing as many things because we're just trying to spend more time with her and make sure that you know she's getting the attention that she needs but also when it comes to something that's through my work i have to go but that means that maybe my wife has to stay home. And then there's this weird like resentment, you know, and even it's not really, it's, it's not done out of malice or out of anger, but it's just like, Oh, but, but that used to be me. I used to get to go to all of those things. And I, like, I can feel a little bit of that resentment coming, even though there's nothing we can do about it. It's just, you know, life has now changed and we have to figure out how that works. So relatable. My husband and I are, we're really fun. If I don't say so myself, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> we used to travel and music and nights out and blah, 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 all these things. And that's really important to him. He's a musician and, you know, he loves all of that. And this like, who are you thing? I think it was hard for him because sometimes he'd be like, babe, let's get a babysitter tonight. I have these tickets to a show. And I'd be like, well, I don't want to go to a show. Like I, we need to stay here with George. I haven't seen him enough today. And I'm sure that for him in many ways, he's like, who are who are you? Like, where's my fun, playful wife? Where did she go? And so something we really had to navigate was me being able to see his pain as valid in that, you know, it's very easy for me as a mom to be like, well, who are you? Don't you care about your kid? Like, I can't believe you'd want to be away from them. But for me to be able to step back and be like, you know what, honey, like that's totally valid that you miss that life. And I need to make time for it. And I need to adjust the way I feel about sometimes leaving our son. Um, but yeah, it's having a baby is tough. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the most amazing thing, but it is like the hardest thing at the same, and, and on many different levels, not only like oh, yeah. the exhaustion and all of that, but like, but it does, it's just, it's a real game changer in so many ways that you can never 
nobody can give you the advice that you need until it happens. Like you need to experience it for yourself because you will not understand what that advice means until it happens. When I work with couples who are about to have a baby, I kind of just let them live in their, their excited bliss a little bit. Cause you can't, you know, I used to, with people that I was working with, try to be like, so how are you going to prepare for the stress and da, 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 da. And I would say 99.9% .9 of pregnant couples will say, oh, we are so ready for it. We're taking three months and it's going to be so fun. We'll watch movies while we're feeding the baby. And, you know, we've got it. We're, we have boundaries with our family. We've, we've set all this up. And then they come in like a month after the baby's born and they're like, we can't do this. Right. <laughs> oh, and so I used funny. to try to help them prepare, but I've realized you literally cannot prepare for it. You kind of just have to go into it and then be like, okay, what are we going to do now? How are we going to navigate this? Because it's unexplainable. It's it's so interesting too. I don't want to keep harping on the pandemic, but like having a baby during the pandemic was such a strange yeah. experience. I, I don't, I didn't have a baby prior to, so I don't have the two to compare, but you know, neither one of my wife and I's families live close to us. We're both, we live in Baltimore. We're, we're transplants. What She's from upstate New York. I'm from New Hampshire. So our families still live far away, but they couldn't really come visit us because travel was not really working out for everybody. And they were trying to be safe and, and we didn't want anybody to bring anything in when they came to the house to see the baby like it's just it was such a crazy weird experience I mean just trying to find a nanny for a couple hours each day was kind of a, a nightmare process we're like well we got to make sure yeah. this person's going to be serious about you know taking their health seriously because god forbid they bring something in when they're watching our child yeah. like it was it's such a crazy crazy world to go through all that and then you're worried for the nanny too like yeah. we we had that situation and I'm like I'm worried about us but I'm also worried like I went to a grocery store yesterday. Yeah. Should I tell her not to come anymore? You know, it, there's like so much fear. And I thought a lot about people who had itty bitty babies during this time where it's a time that you need a ton of support. Like it's just not, it's just so hard to do on your own. But when that support feels like a risk in itself, that is like a no win double bind. Like it's, I'm, I'm truly amazed with parents who navigated that because so much stress, so much isolation, so much uncertainty. And then on top of it, sleep deprivation, newness, wanting to celebrate your baby and nobody being able to see them. Sure. I mean, it's so hard. We're, we're going through that now because my wife wants to do like a big first birthday party for uh -huh. our daughter, which I fully support, but it's weird because her birthday's in December. So we can't even like plan for an outdoor thing and cross our fingers for the weather because the weather's probably going to be pretty cool. So I just, it's so strange. Like we don't really, we did get lucky that a lot of our very close friends uh, took the situation very seriously. And because of that, we all found ways that we could still get together in some capacity, you know, whether it's sitting in somebody's driveway and having a little fire in the driveway and just having drinks around the campfire or whatever. Like we found ways that we could still gather and yeah. be social. Um, so I don't think our daughter is like super antisocial because she has still been around people, thankfully. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we're getting into the winter season now and it's probably going to shut down for a little bit. Now I do feel bad for her because she is starting to want to like play with other people and do things. And I'm just like, oh man, like that's, we're in that world now. That's really hard. My friend's kid has a December birthday and he's at the age where he totally wants a birthday party, sure. you know, sure. like, like four. 
And I was like, you got to figure out how to have one. Like, what can we do? I suggested an outdoor, like rent snow machines and do an outdoor snowball fight. Okay. <laughs> but it's like so sad that you have to navigate things that way because obviously you love your kids so much. You want them to be able to do what they want to do and what they should have access to. And so another thing that comes up for parents a lot is grief right now. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah. You know, a lot of parents have had a lot of grief around their kids' experiences, their own experiences of their kids. You know, I've worked with people who feel grief that like their families couldn't come the first couple weeks that the baby was around, or they feel grief that they can't have a first birthday party, or they feel grief that their kid didn't go to, you know, I have a friend who's a second grade teacher and she brought this up to me, her second graders have never been in a real classroom oh my until gosh, now. Wow. So she's teaching eight and nine-year-olds who should have been going through kindergarten and first grade, but only made it halfway through kindergarten and none of first grade. And so they've never learned to sit at a desk. They've never learned to, you know, do the more um, structured learning. And so I've worked with a lot of parents who just grieve like for their kids, like you didn't get to know what kindergarten's like. You didn't get to know what it's like to be in first grade. I didn't get to take a first day of school picture. And I think that because there's been so much pain that people haven't like fully let that out yet. Um, but I've been seeing it come out more and more as people start to feel safer. They're starting to recognize the things that really upset them over the past year that they just didn't let themselves look at or think about. Well, it's good they're recognizing it at least. Like they're starting to see it at least. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, I hope more people give themselves permission to do that. Like even my best friend, nobody got to meet her baby because yeah. he was born yeah. in February. Same with your baby. Um, he was born in February and it was just not safe because it was so it's cold. You have to be inside and in spaces. So there's like a lot of grief around that. It's hard. Well, Liz, the uh, the book is fantastic. It's called I Want This to Work, an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age. Um, I, I just want to congratulate you. That's it. Congratulations. I'm so proud of Thank you for this. You. I, I know you I can tell you worked very hard on it. And I just think that's so exciting to have this work of art here. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for talking about it today. Oh my gosh. Thank you for giving me your time. Uh, before we do wrap up here, um, where can people find you if they want to connect or if they want to find out more about the book, what, where should they go to do that? Yeah. So if you're on Instagram, the easiest place to find me is Atlas Listens. I share lots of relationship tips there. I also have a website, elizabethearnshaw.com and you can go there and there's like links to the book and all this, the stuff that I do. So that's probably the second easiest place to find me. Well, thank you again, Liz. Uh, seriously, I appreciate this. I'm so glad we got a chance to catch up again. This is awesome. Thank you so much. It was good to see you and talk to you. Thank you to Elizabeth Earnshaw for her time today. What a great chat. I really, I wanted to talk to her for so much longer, but I had to wrap it up at some point. I mean, it was getting close to dinner time, so I had to make sure we wrapped it up. Uh, her book, I Want This to Work, is available on November 30th, but you can pre-order it right now on Amazon. And thank you to all of you for listening today. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to hang out with me. Until next time, be well.